I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Kings. We continue our, our study of that book. We are dealing with the life of uh, King Solomon, his life and reign, and in uh, 1 Kings chapter 5. 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of God. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he had heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me and for my servants, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants much such wages as you set. For you, see, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have heard of the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all your desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place that you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. And King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. And they would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work. 
who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. And so Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebel did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's join together for a moment in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word which reveals to us your mighty deeds in history. You raised up for yourselves kings over Israel. King David, King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. And Lord, you, in the raising up of these men, have much to teach your church throughout all the ages. And in the preparations that are made for the building of that great house, the temple, uh, we have much to learn. Grant, O Lord, that we might have hearts that are open and that we would hear what you have for us this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Of all of the great projects that was ever, has ever been done in the world, the greatest project, building project, it has been that which was carried out by King Solomon in Jerusalem at, in the text that we have just read, which describes something of the preparations that Solomon made. And one of the things that I think that uh, for all of us in terms of our lives, uh, the most important thing for us to know is what is important. What is it that is the driving force of our lives? And Solomon clearly was given a task by God. And that task was to build the temple, which would be the earthly dwelling place of God. And so I'd like for us to consider this passage, which describes the preparations that Solomon made to do this great work of building. I'd like to consider it under three headings, three major headings. First, the conditions that were necessary for Solomon to build. Secondly, the plan that was implemented. And third, I'd like for us to consider the true temple, and the true stone that is quarried from the mountain, uh, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's consider then this text first, the conditions that were necessary for Solomon to begin to build the temple of the Lord. We remember that uh, in verse 3, Uh, in our text, that the Lord had said to David that he was not to be, be the one to build the house for the name of the Lord his God. And uh, David dis- 
desire to be the one to build that house. In fact, in Psalm 132, we read that David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David had a heart filled with a sincere purpose to please the Lord in the building of a great and awesome house for the Lord, uh, for the Ark of the Covenant. But David wasn't allowed to do that. And we're told in verse 3 that it was because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him. Uh, David, in his reign, was, uh, had to deal consistently with the many attacks upon Israel. And uh, he conducted warfare upon those nations that were at war with God's anointed king. If we remember that David is God's anointed king, and yet they uh, have the steadfast purpose to attack the people of Israel and to attack uh, the work of God that he is doing through the anointed king. And so David had to subdue those enemies all around him. Nevertheless, in spite of the fact that David um, was busy with con- the conducting of warfare, he was able to build, gather many materials. Um, he was able to uh, work with uh, Tyre and the king of Tyre to gather much of that which was to be for the building of the house. Uh, David says in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the lands. I'd like to just pause on that. Notice that language. David's purpose was that the house of the Lord would be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. He says, I will therefore make preparation for it. And David provided materials in quantity for Solomon to use after he would no longer be able to carry on the work. So the first thing that we note is David's desire, the disappointment that he had in not being able to carry out what he wanted to do. And so it is in our lives as well that we often find that we are in places where we wish to do something that we consider of great importance. And for some reason or other, God in his providence makes it clear that it is not for us to do. But he will carry on the work that is his to do in the world, that is God's work in the world, in the way in which he has planned. And it may not be that we are the ones to do it, but God will carry that work on through someone else. We see that here in David's life, where he experienced the disappointment of not being able to do that which he desired to do, and yet, nevertheless, God raised up his son, Solomon, to carry out that work. 
And so God works through the ages, uh, carrying on the work of his kingdom. And so we note then that God raises up a new king of peace, Solomon. And the Lord, uh, Solomon says that the Lord, my God, has given me rest. There is no longer a condition of warfare. He says there's no adversary or misfortune uh, at this time. And uh, so uh, a state of peace now exists in the kingdom of Israel. All of the enemies of Israel have, are submitted to Solomon's reign. And uh, a close rela- there is a close relationship between the ability to build and to work and to do the work that God had called him to do with the matter of peace. Peace was needed and a settled state of affairs. The temple couldn't be built as long as there were nations uh, attacking Israel. So, So Solomon, having rid himself of internal enemies and external enemies, now enters into a, a cooperative arrangement to carry on this great work. And it is his intention, as he says in verse 5, that he will build the house for the name of the Lord my God. He says, I will build a house for the name of the Lord my God. And it is for God and his name and for his glory that Solomon desires to do that work. And uh, someone has said, it is always a good thing for us to examine our own hearts with respect to what it is that we are doing, the work that we are engaged in. Is it truly our motive that God would be glorified in the schoolwork that we do? Is it truly our desire that God would be glorified in our working whatever particular job it is that God has called us to do? Solomon says, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. It was not about Solomon. It was about the glory of God. And so I ask you to consider and to ask yourself, What are those things that drive you to do the things that you do every day? Is it for the glory of God? We notice as well that Solomon proceeds in a plan to build the temple of God uh, with the authorization of God given to him in the form of a promise. In verse 5, we read, that Solomon says, As the Lord said to David, my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Here God specifically says that it is Solomon's task to do this. And in First Chronicles chapter 22, verses 9 and 10, uh, David relating... The Lord's speaking to him about Solomon, says, Behold, a son shall be born to you, God says to David. A son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon, which means peace. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. And he shall build a house for my name. 
and he shall be my son, and I will be to him a father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. If there was ever a divine warrant, if there was ever a divine authorization, Solomon had it from God. And so it is that in all of the work that we, are, are, that we do in the world, we also should seek to work in such a way that what we do is, is uh, covered by and authorized by the promise of God. We think of the commission, the great commission of the church, and the work that the church is called to do in the world. God has made very great and specific promises to his people that he will be with them, that he will bless them. And as the gospel is spread from nation to nation, and as the gospel goes out, he will build and build up his church. And so the, God has given us great promises, and we live and we work knowing that God has promised us that if we are obedient to him and we live and work in faith and in trust, he will bless our efforts. Solomon was given this charge by David, his father. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Be strong and do it. The Lord has chosen you for this very purpose. So we see then those are the conditions that were necessary to go forward with the beginning of the building of God's temple. Secondly, we see that the plan is implemented. The plan that God, uh, that uh, Solomon establishes involves bringing other nations and kings into that work. We read of Hiram, who we are told always loved David, and as a consequence, reached out and sent messengers to Solomon when he heard of uh, Solomon's being anointed as king. What a wonderful thing, the warm relationships that existed between David and Solomon, and Solomon desires that those warm relationships should continue. And Hiram and the men that worked under him were a necessary part, Gentiles though they were, for the building of this great house that Solomon would build. And so negotiations then begin between David, between uh, Solomon and uh, Hiram. And uh, that is what the, a good part of this chapter recounts for us. And uh, Solomon says to Hiram it makes a request in verse 6. Now therefore command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. Now therefore command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. And my servants will join your servants. And I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God planted those cedars. God planted this timber that would be used for the building up of his house, and he raised up Hiram to help in the building of it. And then we read of Hiram's response to Solomon with joy. And so 
uh, he comes in verse 7. As soon as Hiram heard of uh, the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and he said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over his great people. Hiram recognizes the wisdom that God has given to Solomon. He says, and, and not only does he recognize the wisdom, but he praises God. Blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David such a wise son to be over such a great people. Even a heathen king gives praise and honor to the God of Israel. And uh, one uh, commentator says, even heathen nations, whether friendly or conquered, took part in the building of the house of the God of Israel. And so they contributed indirectly to the glorifying of God. We need to remember that in our own time. That God accomplishes his purposes through rulers and kings. Whether they know it or not, whether they intend it or not, God works through them. And in the case of Hiram, here is one who gladly and knowingly gives assistance to the building of the house for the Lord. And he gives glory to God. What a wonderful foretaste of the coming of the Gentiles to the knowledge of the God of Abraham in Hiram's praise. And so Hiram is ready in verses 8 and 9. He says, I'm ready to do all that you desire in the matter of the cedar and the cypress uh, timber. Hiram explains how he will get the wood to Solomon in verse 9. They'll, 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 they'll cut it. They'll make barges out of it. They'll send it down through the waterways and uh, bring it up over land to Jerusalem. And so the plan then is implemented in verses 10 through 12. Um, in verses 10 through 12, uh, we're told that Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. And then Solomon gave to Hiram all that he had promised him. And uh, the Lord then, we're told in verse 12, the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. Verse 12 it is, is an important verse in this chapter because it highlights the wisdom of Solomon. Remember that at the uh, end of chapter 4, we have uh, mention made in verse 34 of chapter 4, and the people of all the nations come to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He is the embodiment of wisdom. And from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And Hiram is presented in this chapter as one of those kings who acknowledges and recognizes that God has given great wisdom to Solomon. And there was peace between them. They entered into a treaty. And uh, uh, then we have a note in uh, verses 13 through 16 of the purposes of God in, uh, in Solomon's uh, drafting forced labor out of Israel. And we're told that the draft numbered 30,000 men, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. And so you have um, one month of labor in Lebanon, and then two months at home. 
We're told that Adoniram was in charge of this draft and administrating the one month of labor on and the one month of uh, the two months of labor or the, or the two months at home. And so uh, there were burden bearers, 70,000, stone cutters in the hill country. Think of all of the men. Think of all of the human manpower involved in this. Burden bearers, stone cutters. Then those uh, who were called to be the chief officers who were over all of this work that was going on. And this could only happen in a time of peace. It could only happen in a time when Solomon reigned without question over his enemies. And so uh, what about this forced labor in, um, in Israel? Uh, one thing that's important for us to note about it is that in chapter 9, we are told that in verses 20 and 22, that all of the people who were uh, put to forced labor were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel. Their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. These Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day, the writer of Kings says. But of, of the people of Israel... Solomon made no slaves. That's important because the kings of Israel were not to enslave uh, the he their Hebrews, uh, peop the, the people of Israel. But they were allowed to enslave those who were of the foreign nations who remained in the land that they, were not, that they did not devote to destruction. And so in verses 17 and 18, we have a statement, a summary statement of the work that was done at the king's command. Really, in, in some ways, this summarizes the, the gist of, of all of chapter 5. Yeah, it, at the king's command, and they quarried out this great work of quarrying out of great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. And so Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Kebel did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. And so this chapter is summarized by that statement. They prepared the materials to build the temple. And so I'd like for us then to take that now to look thirdly at what this means. One of the things that I think that is, is so important as we read the account of David and of Solomon is to realize that the, the uh, kingdom of the kingdoms of David and Solomon were typological kingdoms. They were meant to teach us something great and wonderful about the the one who would be the greater one, who would be the Messiah, who would come from David and Solomon, who would be the one who would be the true, who would build the true temple of God. And so I want us to consider that uh, he is the one who is cut out. There is one who is cut out. There is a true 
quarried stone that is cut out without human hands. The gathering of all of the materials of timber and stone for the building of the earthly temple foreshadowed the preparation of stone that would build the temple of the Messiah. The the Most High does not live in houses made with hands, we are told. The earthly type of the temple was built with many, many hands, many, many laborers working constantly for seven years to finish the temple. And so I'd like for us to consider that in Daniel chapter 2, we read of a stone cut from a mountain quarry, not the mountain necessarily of Lebanon, But this stone that Daniel envisions is a stone not made with human hands. And I would like to say to you that this stone which is not made with human hands is no other than Jesus Christ in his human nature. Jesus' body His human nature is the true temple made without human hands. Daniel says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and uh, and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. And just as you saw that a stone was cut, he tells the king, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, and the clay, the silver, and the gold, that stone Daniel describes as breaking and destroying all other kingdoms. But that stone described by Daniel as being cut from a mountain, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Puritan theologian John Owen puts it this way, the shaping of the cornerstone, the shaping of the cornerstone of the true temple was the framing, the forming, and the miraculous conception of the body of Christ in the womb of the Virgin. This was the special work of the Holy Spirit in which that which is conceived in her, that is Mary, is of the Holy Ghost. He formed it, that is the human nature of Christ, by his omnipotent power. He formed it in the substance of the body, of the substance of the body of the Virgin Mary. And so the Word, the eternal Word, the Son of God, became flesh. And Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took our flesh. He would take mortal flesh so that by dying and bleeding on a cross, he would destroy the power of the prince of the ruler of the air. 
and bring him under his rule and under his sovereignty and set free all those who trust in him, set free all those who are held captive by Satan. And so Solomon's temple building follows David's subjugation of the surrounding nations. And Jesus' glorious resurrection and his rest and his reign at the right hand of the Father follows his subjugation of his enemy, Satan, on the cross. And it was necessary that Dave, as it was necessary for David's reign of warfare to come before Solomon's reign of peace, so it was necessary that Christ should battle Satan in his humiliated state, and that he should suffer and die on the cross and be raised from the dead and ascend to his throne. By his death on the cross, Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against all of his elect with all of its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus' resurrected human nature is the temple, the true temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And from his position of power and authority, and from his position of having established a basis of rest and peace, he is now engaged in the great work of building a worldwide temple, a project that is so much greater than Solomon's temple. Now, how does he build? How does Jesus build his temple? Peter tells us in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse, beginning at verse 23. The temple is built, the true temple is built of living stones. He says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and the abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for that pure spiritual milk, that by it you may be saved to salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, that is to Christ, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. God, Jesus Christ, from his heavenly throne, is using his word not to quarry out stones from a pit in the middle of a mountain somewhere. But Jesus Christ is using his word to cause men and women and children to be born again, 
to make them alive, to reconcile them by faith in Jesus Christ as the one who justifies us, as the one who sanctifies us, adopts us, and glorifies us. And God, through this great work, is raising up, shaping and molding human lives by his word and by his spirit. And that work is the greatest work that can ever be done. And it is the work that is going on in the world at this time. And it is going on even now. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now in this case, and in this passage, Paul is speaking of the you plural. He's speaking of the whole church as being that great edifice that God is building. It is God's temple built through the power of his word and the power of his spirit. Eric Alexander, a British preacher, was called upon to preach a sermon at the 350th anniversary of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he ended his sermon with these words. And uh, before I read what he says, sort of this brings us around full circle. And it makes us ask the question, what is really important? What is God doing in the world? We live in a media-saturated culture. And everybody's trying to tell you what is most important. They're trying to set the agenda They're trying to make you put all of your eggs and all your emotions and all your efforts in a certain direction. And you've got to keep your eyes focused on what God is doing in history. We've got to do that. And this is what Eric Alexander says along these lines. What is the really important thing that is happening in the world in our generation? Where are the really significant events taking place? Where is the focus of God's activity in history? In answer to all these questions, the most significant thing happening in history is the calling, redeeming, perfecting of the people of God. God is building the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of history is simply the stage that God erects for that purpose. He is calling out a people. He is perfecting them. He is changing them. And the rest of history is simply the scaffolding for this great work. So I want us to consider and ask ourselves this question. Do we really understand what is important, what God is doing in history? And do we really understand and know 
what God is doing in our own personal lives as the word of God is preached to us and as it is applied to our own personal lives and circumstances. It is like the chisel coming down on those stones, shaping them, and they had to be shaped in the mountain. They couldn't have hammers and chisels in Jerusalem where the temple was being built. It all had to be done far away. But God, through his word, is shaping and forming and molding spiritual stones to go into this worldwide spiritual temple that he is building that is nothing other than the church of Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to be a part of it. Think of all of the work that goes on for the building up of this. Think of the, of, of, of the teaching in the Sunday school classes and the, and, the, and the ministry that goes on in personal sharing and Bible studies and, and the various ways in which the word of God comes to us in the life of the congregation of, 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 of God's people. What is God doing through that process? He's preparing stones. He's preparing living stones. He's conforming us and shaping us to the one who is the greatest, the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that we would see something of the greatness of, these, uh, of this type that points us ahead to the work that Christ is doing through his word and spirit. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for this uh, word and for all of the preparations and the great wisdom that belong to Solomon. We see and know that it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, who is wisdom personified. And we do thank you, Lord, that you have called us into unto Jesus Christ, that cornerstone that you have called us to him. And Lord, we do pray that you would continue that work which you have begun. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.